Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now, as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that his spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Amen. Amen. All right. I want us to get started this morning um, by stopping to consider just what we've done over the past several weeks as we've walked through Genesis 1 and 2. I want us to stop and consider what happened here over the last several weeks that by going back to the very beginning, just consider this, that we have answered some of the most pressing and existential questions of all of life. From Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, where did we come from? Who are we? What is our purpose in the world? What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? What is the meaning of marriage? How do all these things relate to one another? All huge questions and building blocks related to our very existence and our origins. And so the story of humanity The origin story of humanity we've seen is a beautiful one. And the opening pages of the Bible read as an epic fairy tale. An eternal, transcendent, self-existent creator speaking the universe into existence. We spent time seeing that. A pristine garden in Eden, a sweet and beautiful couple filled with love for one another and wonderful compatibility with each other. The most stunning wedding you could ever dream of. An eternity ahead of them to multiply and fill the earth and expand the borders of the garden all throughout the world. There's literally no end to the potential and the happiness and the glory of what God has in store for them. Everything, as we read Genesis 1 and 2, is perfect. What can go wrong? Well, apparently, a lot can go wrong. I mean, this is not the world that we live in. The world that we live in is filled with moment-by-moment reminders that something is very wrong. Something is wrong with the world. When you lock your doors at night, when you hide your PIN number from the person behind you at the ATM machine, when your tomato plant in your garden withers in the hot sun while the weeds that you don't want continue to thrive. 
When you get a checkup at the doctor, your cholesterol is too high or your blood pressure is too low or when you can't quite see or hear or move the same way you used to. Or when you're sitting in the chapel of the funeral home staring at a casket, hearing all the wonderful things a person did while they were alive, but now they're not. How did we get from Genesis chapter 2 to where we are today? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, the epic story of creation takes a sudden turn. The unfolding drama sees an unexpected uh, twist. In Genesis chapter 3, everything is about to change as human beings are suddenly captivated and the affections of the heart subtly turned and stimulated and as the will of the heart is quickly corrupted. If you want to know how we get from Genesis 2 to where we are today, Genesis chapter 3. So I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn right now to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can put up your hand, and one of the ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible will be our gift to you. We would really love you to take it home and read it and have your life changed by the Word of God. Continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The title of this morning's message is this, What Went Wrong? What Went Wrong? Let's look at the text. Starting from verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, it says this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, what went wrong? How do we get to where we are today from the ending of the beautiful fairy tale of Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Well, the answer is we get here because of sin. 
We get here because of a real adversary and a real enemy who seeks for sin to take root in the hearts of people. We're going to unpack this play by play, how sin takes root in the heart and therefore changes everything in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to get started with this. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. How sin takes root in the heart. Firstly, this, a questioning God leading to doubt. Just in case you're unaware, we have a real adversary. Ephesians 6 says that he is scheming 1 Peter 5 says that he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Just in case you're oblivious to this reality, Genesis chapter 3 brings this to the forefront of our attention. The human race has a real adversary. God has a real adversary. He is the devil, and he is in the business of questioning God and seeking to sow seeds of doubt in the hearts of humanity. I want you to look with me at verse 1 again. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, notice, he said to the woman. Now let's just stop right here for a moment. The first thing we need to do is uh, iron out some wrinkles about the serpent. The serpent that the Bible says is crafty and the serpent who can talk. What's up with the crafty talking snake in Genesis chapter 3? And how is he even there in the first place when all that God created was very good? So we want to iron this out really quickly. Firstly, I want you to understand that the serpent was there because it was created by God among all the other beasts of the field, and it was part of God's good Creation, verse one, tells us this plainly. It says, notice it, the serpent was more crafty, notice, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. How did the serpent get there? God made the serpent. It's one of the animals, okay? Secondly, this raises an important question. If the serpent was part of God's good creation, how is the serpent simultaneously crafty? It's an important question for us to understand and important for us to understand linguistically that in the Bible, the Hebrew word crafty is used both positively and negatively all throughout the scriptures, but the word itself is not bad in and of itself. And so R.C. Sproul comments on the word crafty this way. He says, it is an ability to deal with people with subtlety a quality that can be used for good or, in Satan's case, evil. So God created the serpent as part of his good creation, and the serpent is crafty, which is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But thirdly, thirdly, there's another question we need to answer. Why is the serpent talking? And why is the serpent tempting the woman? It's a good question. It's an important question. And the truth is, Genesis chapter 3 doesn't tell us directly why this serpent is talking and why this serpent is tempting. 
But you don't need to look very far in the scriptures to understand what's going on here and how this is happening. The serpent is talking and the serpent is tempting the woman because the serpent has been inhabited by Satan himself. Satan has come upon this animal that God has created good and Satan has inhabited the serpent. Passages like Matthew 8, 28 to 34 and Mark 5, 6 to 13 show us that demons can inhabit both people and animals. That's what's going on here. On the screen for you, Guy Richard quoting John Calvin wrote this. John Calvin argues that Satan chose the serpent as his mouthpiece, notice this, because he knew that he couldn't appear to Adam and Eve and speak to them as himself. He needed a mouthpiece that wouldn't raise their immediate suspicions, one with which they would have been familiar Satan chose the most suitable animal possible to carry out his plans. He chose the one animal in all of God's creation that was most cunning or crafty, the one that was most shrewd or wise. He took the serpent's natural gifts and perverted them for his own nefarious purposes. So God created the serpent as part of his good creation. The serpent is crafty, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. And Satan himself chose to inhabit the serpent as the most suitable of all the animals and use the serpent as his mouthpiece to tempt Adam and Eve. Perfect. But where did Satan come from? Are you asking that question? I mean, it makes sense to ask that question. It's a good and important question. And I want you to understand that it's a question the Bible itself does not speak of very clearly, but nonetheless, it's a question that the Bible does satisfy. So very quickly, I want to show you three biblical truths about the origins of Satan, and then we're going to move on. Where did Satan uh, come from? Uh, number one is this on the screen. Uh, God created him. God created him. Listen, we've already seen in Genesis chapter one and two that God alone existed eternally from eternity past into eternity future. And there's no dual force or dual power or dual person competing with God from eternity past. And therefore, Satan must have been created by God. Secondly, God created him good. God created him good. Again, based on all we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything good, and everything is made consistently with his good nature. In fact, 1 Timothy 4, 4 says, for everything created by God is good. So Satan must have been created by God, and he must have been created good. But there's a third thing I want you to see. Some created angels rebelled against God. And there's at least two places in scripture that teach us this. On the screen for you, the Bible tells us firstly in 2 Peter 2.4, this, uh, God did not spare, watch this, angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Most commentators understand this to be a description of the origins of Satan and demons. There's a second place in scripture in Jude verse six. It says on the screen, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so at some unspecified point between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, Scripture seems to indicate that there was some rebellion in heaven. And Satan, who was originally a beautiful created angel, turned against the authority of God and was cast out of heaven along with the other hosts of fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. So there's probably a million more questions going on in your mind. There should be. I hope you're being good Bible students. I hope you want to know more. Well, let me commend to you a resource. As the purpose of this message is not a doctrine of angels, demons, and Satan, but let me commend to you a resource that every serious student of the Bible should have on their shelf. It is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He has a wonderful and extensive section on a doctrine of angels, demons, and Satan. When studying a doctrine of angels, demons, and Satan, you have to have a good, solid, reputable resource. Because there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. Let me commend this to you. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a big, thick book. It is expensive. But I urge you to make the investment because it'll teach you a lot. So God created the serpent as part of his good creation. The serpent is crafty, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. Satan himself chose to inhabit the serpent as the most suitable of all animals and use the serpent as his mouthpiece to tempt Adam and Eve. And Satan is a created fallen angel that rebelled against God and it has its foremost priority. He has his foremost priority to deceive and destroy humanity. Now that that's out of the way, look at verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, notice the question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? On the screen for you, Bruce Watke wrote this. He wrote, Satan is an outspoken theologian who hates God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls their dialogue the first conversation about God. It is not prayer or calling on God together, but speaking about God and going beyond him. That's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. 
And having been tossed out of heaven with no hope of overthrowing the sovereign authority of God, Satan sets his sights on the crowning glory of God's creation, his very image bearers, and understanding that he has no chance of defeating God, he approaches the garden, inhabits the serpent, and activates an evil plot to infect the world with the very evil that has guaranteed his own demise. Look at verse one again. Did God actually say? Well, Satan is poking around. He's luring, he's enticing. And he's intentionally and essentially inviting Eve to reconsider whether or not God has her best interests in mind. And he does this with a question. Right away, it becomes very clear what Satan's doing. As a master manipulator, a liar from the beginning, Jesus says, he asks a subtle question. Instead of making a shocking statement, this is what master manipulators do. He, he asks a subtle question instead of making an overt, shocking statement, and the question is designed to sow the seed of doubt in the heart concerning what God has said. Did God actually say? But he doesn't just sow the seed of doubt with a subtle and manipulative question. He actually twists what God has said. He twists the word of God. I want you to see it in verse 1. Look at it, he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Again, good Bible students, no. Hold on, God, God didn't say that. God did not say you can't eat of any tree in the garden. And so even though Eve goes on to correct the serpent, nonetheless, I want you to see the question has had its intended impact. Look at verse two. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she rightly corrects him. Notice what she says next though. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Watch this. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Hold on, Eve. Good for you to correct the serpent, you're right. God didn't say you couldn't eat of any of the fruit of the trees of any tree, but who said anything about touching it? Did, did God say not to touch it? Well, he didn't. He just said, don't eat from it. So the fact that Eve makes this little addition, neither shall you touch it, is a subtle indication to us that the serpent's smooth tactic is working. How do we know that? Because she's beginning to form a view of God that is not in line with who he is or what he's actually said. It's so subtle. She's beginning to form this view of God as particularly strict. He, he said, don't touch it. No, 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 he didn't say that. He said, don't eat from it, Eve. You're going beyond what God has said. She's beginning to see God very subtly as a hard God. And these are the seeds that the serpent is planting with the evil intention 
of a widespread germination in the human heart. It begins with a smooth and subtle question and the twisting of God's word designed to cast doubt. Did God really say she corrected him, but the question had an impact? She's thinking, she's processing, and she's going beyond what God has said. Satan's trick is working. His question is sowing the seed of doubt. And this, loved ones, is how sin begins to take root in the heart. This is how sin takes root in your heart and in my heart. It's the single in the room who begins to doubt, does God really have my best interests in mind? I, I mean, I've been single for a long time. I really desire this. I mean, Pastor Jason just preached about marriage. It's good. It's from God. Like, I want that. Does God really have my best interests in mind? There's a seed of doubt. It's the husband or the wife in the room who begins to doubt, does God really care if I get my emotional needs met in someone other than my spouse? I mean, is there really a verse that talks to that? There's a seed of doubt. Talked about marriage last week. Maybe your marriage is hard and maybe you're, you're at work and maybe there's a temptation. There's somebody at work paying attention to you. There's somebody at work that listens to you. There's somebody at work that shows you a unique affection and you're tempted. There's a doubt. Does, does God really say? There's a small business owner who begins to doubt. Does God really expect me in this economic climate to declare all my income? I mean, the taxes are going to kill me. I mean, I don't think there's a verse for that. Seed of doubt about what God has said, about what God really means. And the root of all sin in the human heart, loved ones, begins with the twisting and the subtle questioning of God's word designed again to cast doubt. Watch out, loved ones. Watch out. Genesis chapter three is our master class and our chief case study on how to allow sin to take root in the heart and it's so subtle and it's so smooth and it's so fast. We'll see that in a moment. So how sin takes root in the heart, questioning God, leading to doubt. Secondly, this, uh, contradicting God, leading to deception. Contradicting God, leading to deception. Look at verse one again, excuse me, uh, verse two. Excuse me, no, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, notice the contradiction, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I want you to notice how Satan, the master manipulator, begins to strengthen his attack on Eve with a full-on lie. You will not surely die. Satan's assault began with the subtle twisting and questioning of God's word, and now it progresses towards a direct a contradiction. And this is the nature of the spiritual battle with sin, and here we find a turning point that leads the entire human race into ruin and destruction. What is the turning point? Well, Eve believes the lie. 
God said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die. He's lying and Eve believes the lie. She buys into the lie. And as she buys into the lie, she is simultaneously rejecting the good and benevolent authority of God over her life. Unbelief is setting in. Sin is beginning to take root. Eve is officially deceived as she believes the lie. And what makes the deception and the blindness here even more tragic is that the very thing Eve believes she needs to to be like God is in fact the very thing that God has graciously given to them. Adam and Eve have been created in the image of God. They are already like God. He's created them to reflect him. He's created them to show him But but this is what Satan does. He blinds us to the blessings and the benefits that we already possess in order to draw us into the lie that we need something more. That's at the core. That's at the essence of the deception of sin. And this is at the heart of every single sin we engage in. There's some lie. There's some contradiction that you and I believe, and if Satan can get you to believe it, then he has got you. It's a lie. God says you will surely die, you will surely die. And he understands what that means. And Satan comes and says, you will not surely die. He's lying. Don't believe it. The teenager who sins by cheating on her exam You know, it may seem like a little decision unrelated to the spiritual realm in any way, but I want you to understand, the teenager who sins by cheating on her exam is believing a lie. Satan is luring, he's poking, he's tempting, he's enticing, he's casting doubt, and he's causing you to believe a lie. He's seeking to deceive you, the lie. The cheating on your exam is better than obedience and trust in a good God and all that he said. That's at the core of it. It happens so fast. Or the married man who sins by watching inappropriate material online, he is believing a lie. That's at the core of what's happening. He's he's believing a lie that's moving him to that action, that watching inappropriate material online is better than obedience and trust in a God and all that he has said. The pastor who sins by compromising God's word on the cultural issues of the day has believed a lie. He may think he's trying to be culturally sensitive or culturally relevant. No, what's happening is you're believing a lie, pastor. The capitulation to the culture is better than obedience and trust in a good God and all that he has said. At the core of all sin is Satan casting doubt on what God has said and Satan contradicting outright what God has said through a lie, if he can hook you in to believe that lie, if he could hook you in to believe that false promise, then he's got you. Oh, loved ones, this is at the heart of all sin. The belief in a lie and therefore unbelief in what is true And right, Eve here has been deceived. She's bought into the deception. 
What about you in your life? Maybe there's people in the room and, and you're struggling with a particular sin and you're trying everything. You don't know how to navigate it, but maybe God's word is shining a light and saying, get to the root of the issue. What's the lie you're believing? Maybe someone in the room struggles with an addiction to pornography. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. There's something happening in your heart. Satan is lying to you that when you search that website or when you look at your phone or when you look at your laptop or when you take that iPad to a secluded room, there will be pleasure there that you can find nowhere else. It's a lie. Because you know when you go there, you don't end up with pleasure, you end up with sorrow. You believe the lie. There's someone in the room and you struggle with gossiping. You may think, man, that's just the way that I am. I struggle with the sin of gossip. No, there's a lie that you believe. Every time you open your mouth and say, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? It may feel like a knee-jerk reaction. It may feel like you have no control over it, but God's word is shining a light on the heart. Satan is poking, he's enticing, he's luring, he's already caused you to doubt what God's word has said, and he's lying to you that this is gonna feel really good when you gossip about this person. It is better than obedience to God's word. That's what's happening in the heart. And when you lean over that person, you say, did you hear about so-and-so? You believe the lie that what you're engaging in is better than obedience to God. This is what's happening in Genesis chapter three. She says, God says, if we eat of this fruit, we will surely die. Satan says, you're not gonna die. And she believes him. I wonder if each of us can look at our own hearts. And it's hard work. And the Christian faith is a thinking faith. It's a journaling faith. It's a faith that needs time, that you could sit with a journal early in the morning and give yourself an hour or two hours to think deeply about your heart. And to write a column for lie, a column for truth, and begin to diagnose your own heart with the word of God. What are the lies that I believe that are leading me to this sin and this sin and this sin? And what is the corresponding truth that will liberate me and set me free? The Christian faith is a thinking faith. And maybe you're sitting here saying, man, I don't have much victory in my life over sin. Well, maybe you need to go to Indigo or the dollar store and buy a journal and give yourself an hour or two hours every day and pour over the scriptures and examine your heart about the things that you believe that are lies, that direct your heart to act in certain ways and kill those things and find the corresponding truth of, of the Bible that will release you from the bondage of sin. This is at the core. How Satan takes root in the heart. Questioning God leading to doubt. He contradicts God leading to deception. Finally this, how sin takes root in the heart. 
um, counterfeit gods leading to desire. Counterfeit gods leading to desire. Look at verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, notice, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In this devastating, devastating, tragic moment, unbelief has taken root in Adam and Eve's heart. Adam and Eve have essentially transferred their trust away from God. They have transferred their allegiance away from God. They have transferred their loyalty away from the creator God towards something else. It began with doubting what God has said. It was intensified and carried along by adding further deception to the doubt. And it takes root finally when the desires and the affections of the heart are fully captured. Again, away from the creator and toward something else, a counterfeit, a counterfeit God. Remember what Jesus said on the screen in Matthew 6, 21. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the moment that the serpent has been working towards, the turning of humanity's affections away from the creator so that, listen, they treasure something else. They desire some idol. They worship a counterfeit God. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Meaning what you desire, what you treasure, what you worship is where your heart is. And where your heart is, is going to lead all of your behavior and your entire life. C.S. Lewis on the screen said this, He said, human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that's exactly what Satan has convinced Adam and Eve of here in Genesis 3. There's something else other than the Transcendent, self-existent creator, God. There's something else. There's a counterfeit that will make you happy. And Genesis 3 gives us the play-by-play. I want you to notice the key moments in verse 6. You can look at it in your Bible. Verse 6, so when the woman, notice, saw. I want you to notice that her vision and her imagination is captivated. 
when the woman saw. Essentially, the serpent is talking to her. He's luring her in, and it's almost like she looks, and she locks in on the fruit. She's captivated in her imagination. I wonder what this tastes like. It can make me like God. And she's locked in, her eyes, her vision. When the woman saw that the tree was good, she's locked in, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. She's, she's locked in, she's staring at the fruit. Now her affections and her emotions are stirred. It's almost like her heart starts beating quickly because it looks so good. And on top of the fact that it's good for food, this looks like it tastes really good. Now the deception, and it'll make me like God. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was the delight to the eyes, notice, and the tree was to be desired to make one <clears throat> wise. Her desires have changed. Her desires have changed. Notice what happens when the desires of the heart change, when the treasures of the heart change. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Their will and their behavior has been established. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why Satan targets your desires, and he does so how? With counterfeit gods. With some treasure, with some idol, something that looks so good to the eyes, that looks like it will taste so good as food, that looks like it will give me something to make me wise, that looks like it'll make me something I've always wanted to be. He's luring, he's enticing, he's sown the seed of doubt, he's deceived her with a lie, she grabs onto the lie, her heart affections are now moving towards the counterfeit God, and she sins. That's how it works. That's the play-by-play. -play. That's the masterclass on how sin takes root in the heart. And this is how we get from Genesis chapter two to where we are today. Sin. Counterfeit gods leading to desire. Tim Keller is the one who wrote the book Counterfeit Gods. He coined the term this is what he wrote. He wrote, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Someone asked the question, how can you identify these insidious idols? How can you tell if you are worshiping a counterfeit God? Keller says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I wonder if there are any counterfeit gods in your heart. 
Something that if you lose it, you would feel like life is hardly worth living. There they are in the pristine garden. Satan had caused the first humans to doubt God's word, to believe an alternative lie, and to desire something in the creator's place so badly that in an instant they would trade allegiance to him to gain the false promise on the other side. This is the origin of sin, and this is how sin takes root in the heart. And for some of us, this is happening in our hearts every single day, and we see it not. Every single day maybe even right now. So I'm asking you, loved ones, what are your counterfeit gods? That if you lose it, you would feel like life is hardly worth living. Is it a job? Is it your economic stability? If you lose that, you would feel like life is hardly worth living. You read stories of the Great Depression and how things got so hard financially. And you read these remarkable stories about people throwing themselves off buildings and committing suicide. How does that happen? They've worshiped a counterfeit God. That when this becomes everything, when you lose it, you feel like life is hardly worth living. Is it a spouse? Is it marriage? There's some people in the room, you've had a fairy tale, imagination about what marriage is. For some reason, you didn't read the right books, you didn't talk to the right people, nobody told you what to expect. The marriage is hard. There's a honeymoon phase, it gets difficult. And for some of you, whether it's a lady or whether it's a man or a wife or a husband, your marriage is not turning out the way you thought it was gonna turn out and you are despairing. And you are saying, I never thought it would be this way. I imagined something else. I wanted something else. I dreamed of something else. I can't believe what I've done. I've made a mistake and life is hardly worth living. Well, perhaps, loved ones, marriage is your counterfeit God. Your family, your reputation, your influence, power, sex. What have you traded allegiance to God for? You say, I go to church every week. That's not what I'm asking. You say, I'm in a small group. That's not the point. You say, I serve on a team. Great. What is your counterfeit God? That if you were to lose it, you would feel like life is hardly worth living. Look at verse seven. Verse seven gives us the outcome immediately. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As I close, it's amazing how quickly the counterfeits are exposed. It's amazing. 
And you can testify to this in your own life. Their eyes were opened, but in a way that filled them with shame. You see, the pursuit of knowledge apart from the creator always leads us to guilt and condemnation. This is the essence of sin. The pursuit of a counterfeit always leads us to guilt and shame and condemnation. This is the essence of sin. And maybe, loved ones, there's someone here today who feels this way. You've been believing the false lie, the false promise of Satan, and all you feel is guilt and shame. They tried to cover themselves immediately with loincloths. Why? Because worship of a false god always leads to guilt and shame and the desire to cover up. Is there anyone in the room, your life feels like one big cover-up? It just feels like you're always feeling so guilty. I can't let so-and-so know who I really am. I gotta cover up, I gotta cover my sin, but as we'll see the loincloths, they're not sufficient coverings. In fact, later, God is so gracious and he himself provides durable coverings for Adam and Eve as he sends them out of the garden, cursed by sin. Why? Because you can't cover the guilt and the shame that sin has brought about in your life, but there's someone who can. And he's spoken of right in Genesis 3. We're gonna get to it. If you're here today and you feel guilt, and shame, and like you're exhausted because you're always covering up, I want you to know, loved ones, there's good news this morning. In the face of the horrible, tragic news of Genesis chapter three, there is good news. And while we read about the devastation in the Garden of Eden, I want to remind you of another garden. The first Adam we read about here in Genesis three, he failed undoubtedly in the Garden of Eden, trading in God's will for his own. But there is a second Adam named Jesus Christ. He never failed. He succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane by trading his will for God's. The first Adam ate of the tree of knowledge and all of humanity was cursed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, died on the tree of Calvary so that through him all of humanity could be blessed. Sins covered, guilt wiped away, shame no more, forgiveness applied, penalty of death paid, power of sin progressively overcome, presence of sin one day gone, future secure in perfect paradise. Amen. Loved ones, if you're here today, here's my exhortation that you lay down your counterfeit gods once and for all and place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Everything went wrong in Eden. 
But the Bible tells us everything is made right at the cross. And if you're a child of God today, Jesus has made it right. Oh, that we would be a church that lives consistently with the truth and the reality of who we are as new creatures in Jesus Christ. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.